Maine to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. It's 10.01 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. And welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine, and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, there may be some who question the value of public investment in research and development, but in the case of a collaborative project among three main institutions, the results promise to save health care dollars and improve the quality of life for those with kidney disease both here in Maine and around the world. Today we're going to talk with partners in that collaboration, and I'm very happy to welcome a couple of them here in the studio. We'll talk with others by phone. But first, uh, Jen Literal is uh, with the Mount Desert Island Biological Laboratory. And uh, uh, Jen, you've, you've uh, um, made a, a change since the last time we talked about fisheries. <laughs> yes, I have. So welcome back to Talk of the Towns. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And also in the studio with us is Dr. Herman Haller. Um, Herman is um, also an associate of the Mount Desert Island Biological Lab, but um, has a home in Germany, and he'll tell us a little bit about that in just a minute. Yes, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. I'm glad you could be with us. Um, so, Jen, first, tell us a little about the Biological Lab. It's kind of a, the, the smaller sister lab to the Jackson Lab, which is perhaps well more, well, more well-known, but has a very common history. Uh, sure, yes, I'd love to give you some history. So the, I like to sort of start with um, uh, going back in time. I think it was Winston Churchill who said, the further back you can look, the further forward you can see. Mm. So we go back maybe 100 years or so, and a lot of the things that we're doing today, we're not reinventing the wheel. They were done over 100 years ago, um, and we kind of jump across the Atlantic again with our, like our guest here, to Copenhagen and to um, August Crow, who is really considered kind of the father of comparative um, biology, research partnerships, and translational research. And um, he was a Nobel Peace Prize winner in 1920. And he came up with really the principle that was sort of the founding basis for the MDI Biolab, which is that for any given problem in medicine, that there's really an animal model that you can study that in. And so that's really the essence of, of where and why people study um, animal models and, and why it comes into play at the Biolab. And that history was really steeped over in around the 1920s. We had some um, August Crow wasn't at the Biolab, but his uh, daughter, uh, Bodil Schmidt-Nielsen, researched at the lab, devoted her life or her uh, advanced life to, you know, researching there. And then at the same time in the 20s was uh, E.K. Marshall and Homer Smith, which uh, Homer Smith is really regarded as the forefather of how um, uh, kidney function and, and uh, the study of kidneys really worked and is really regarded by kidney doctors around the world. So that's kind of the, the basic history, and I can fill in more a little bit later, but that's 
kind of where it all came from and vesting those principles from Crow into modern times. So. And why Mount Desert Island? How did that happen? <laughs> well, that history actually goes back to uh, George Dorr, which interestingly enough, we have a, uh, a, a talk tonight and dinner tonight um, in Northeast Harbor that is really going to look at that combination of um, George Dorr had asked uh, the Biolab to come here, come to Mount Desert Island in the 1920s, where they wanted to switch from not just having a place of recreation, they wanted to have science happening um, on the island as well and being able to investigate and really appreciate uh, what nature had to offer, not just for the visual pleasures, but also for advancing science and understanding the world that we live in. So, so a grand plan, perhaps, that not, not too many people recognize. That I don't think so, There yeah. was um, an intention to have Mount Desert Island be um, both a, a recreational place, but mm -hmm. also a place of intellect, of science. Right. Yep. Mm. Well, uh, Dr. Holler, you could tell us a little bit about um, the kidney. Now, we don't think too much about kidneys. We think about hearts and brains, but kidneys are important. Yeah, they are. I mean, the kidneys are actually uh, one of the important factories the body has. They use up a lot of the energy. They use up as much energy as the brain. So what do they do? They are here to regulate the body homeostasis. This means they control what gets out and what we keep. And to <coughs> produce uh, the urine, so this is what gets out. It's the waste, but even more important is what they keep. So this balance of letting go and keeping, this is what the kidneys do. Unfortunately for medical doctors, we don't notice them a lot. We don't have pains like with the heart or with other organs. So they sit there, they work hard. And uh, when they have problems, we only recognize these problems too late. Too late. So um, what, what are some of the things that happen when the kidney is in trouble? What, what do we begin to see? Um, how does that affect humans? Yes. In, uh, at the final stages, I mean, you become lethargic and uh, you... Uh, can't work that hard anymore. At the early stages, we see functional changes in the kidney. And one of the first changes we observe, or can observe if we measure and analyze it, is proteinuria. This means that one of the important functions of the kidney to keep things in the body is gradually lost. And we excrete proteins in the urine, which normally we shouldn't. Mm. And to pick this up and to understand how these first changes are happening. This is what we're doing at the BioLab on mm. Mount Desert mm. And tell us a little bit about your own background. Understand that you were here in the United States um, as a postdoc, and that's how you kind of got familiar with, with our, our uh, system and the biological lab. But tell us about your w own work in Germany. Yes. Well, I was a postdoc at Yale in the 80s, and this is how I first came here. And I was struck at the time, uh, not only of the natural beauty mm. of the island, but the scientific quality. This is a meeting place where important, uh, intelligent people meet every summer and now year-round to do research, to discuss these problems, and you rarely find such a high quality of intellectual discussions. Uh, anywhere on the planet. So mm -hmm. this is why I came here in the first place, and then comparative uh, physiology, to use the animals. We started here with sharks. 
We looked into the regenerative capacity of sharks. They can not only bite and make new teeth, <laughs> they can mi make uh, new kidneys. So this is how we started. And now we are very much dedicated to the understanding of proteinuria. And this is why we teamed up with the Jackson Lab. Mm. I myself, I'm a clinician. I run a large uh, nephrology department uh, back in Germany, and it's a luxury and a privilege to come here every year. And this is why we have started on that basis, this collaboration. Mm. So tell us, um, Jen, the biological lab has often turned to the ocean mm -hmm. for its, its, uh, the species that it, it discovers. Yep. And, and sharks were certainly part of that early, early stage. Tell us a little bit about that and, and then how we can kind of bring that up to date. Sure. Um, I think really going back again to the, to the forefathers, <clears throat> I mentioned uh, Homer Smith, who was really the, the father of the study of the kidney in the 1920s. He came <clears throat> to the Mount Desert Island Biolab to understand how the kidneys worked and functioned. And there's functional units of the kidney in different parts. And <clears throat> finding a model to study how things are working, having a model that doesn't have something to really study that makes it even more important. So in a fish called the goosefish, it doesn't have a glomerulus, which is really where that part where we have filtering out of the protein that, that uh, Dr. Haller just talked about. So not having that in, um, in a fish model, you can really understand how that's working and not working to compare it and translate it to human health. So mm. that was sort of one example. Um, they've always looked at marine models and, you know, they've evolved over thousands of years and, you know, have very basic functions that are easier to study and look at um, how, how humans, how it relates to human health. So. And, and why the shark? You, know, you, you mentioned sharks can regenerate um, kidneys, but um, why, why did they develop that capacity? Well, uh, it's not only sharks, it's other fishes, uh, fish as well, but this is uh, the shark was used as an animal model, and uh, so we used the kidneys there and took advantage of this comparative approach. We also used skates to understand this, and now you can do it in zebrafish, and this is the model organism we work with. It's more easy because you can genetically alter the zebrafish. You can change genes, and you can't do this in the shark or mm. in the skate. Mm. This is why we use zebrafish. Mm. So, and, and zebrafish are small tropical fish, is that right? Yes, uh, they uh, originally come from India, uh, so they are used worldwide, uh, but here we have now a large zebrafish facility. There are other zebrafish researchers coming to the island, so there is now a zebrafish community with a lot of exchange. And mm. Mario Schiffer, who is uh, working with me here, he developed, uh, and this is unique on the planet, a novel to understand and to analyze proteinuria in zebrafish. This is how we start. Mm. We probably need a little bit more background on genes to understand this story. So tell us w what are genes and how do they function and, and w why taking them out or putting them in is a, a good way to begin to understand the human system. Yeah, well, that's a good question. I'm a nephrologist. I'm not a geneticist, <laughs> but I try as uh, well as I can. Uh, genes regulate the expression of proteins, so the building molecules of our organs, they come from genes. Mm. And alterations of genes are then important for misfunction, for malfunctioning of organs, so they are the basis for disease. The 
We have lots of genes, so we're thousands of genes, and uh, they produce different molecules, and we try to analyze the different functions for disease. This is why we knock out, this is what we call it, genes in the zebrafish to understand the early stages of renal disease. Mm, because we don't have that knowledge about the human system yet. No, we don't. I mean, renal disease is a, a, a huge problem. Uh, worldwide, it's uh, becoming more and more of a problem because diabetes is increasingly a problem and diabetic nephropathy, this is kidney disease in diabetic patients, is uh, not only a large health problem, but also a problem of costs mm -hmm. because patients then have to go on dialysis and we try to prevent this with our model. Ken? Mm uh, so just some background figures. I mean, <clears throat> in the U.S., there's about 26 million people that have chronic kidney disease. It costs about $42 billion year, dollars a year <clears throat> to treat those patients. And in the state of Maine, uh, with end-stage renal disease, uh, the treatment is really dialysis and, and transplantation. And in the state of Maine, those costs are about $64,000 um, a person in the state. So it's really uh, an economic burden, not only on the families and hardships there, but also um, with the state and federal funding and things of that nature. The, the leading causes for chronic kidney disease are hypertension and um, diabetes, uh, which most people understand diabetes more than uh, chronic kidney disease. But diabetes is a very big uh, problem in the U.S. and worldwide. Uh, the Center for Disease Control predicts that by 2050, one in three people are going to have diabetes if we continue on the trajectory we're on. So that's only going to increase our increase those costs, increase those numbers. So we're really desperate to find out, you know, earlier mechanisms that um, can show that the disease is coming on and to be able to treat it and target before then. Mm. So this notion that, that um, we, we are often treating people kind of at the end stage of the disease, exactly. we're not able to predict and therefore right. prevent those, exactly. those high costs, financial costs, but also the human cost. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's, the, that's what we're the, the project is. So how did the, the partnership come about? Um, sure, I, mean, I can turn this over to... To Herman, because that's okay. kind of where well, he's well, Before we do that, I'll just remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. This is a little bit of a departure. We don't get into biomedical research all that often on Talk of the Towns, but we are today. And uh, we're talking about uh, uh, research, a research collaboration that will help um, understand and perhaps pr prevent kidney disease. Um, in the studio, we have Jen Litterell of the Mount Desert Island Biological Lab and Dr. Herman Haller, who is also with the lab, but um, also the head of a, a medical department in, in Hanover in Germany. Um, in a moment, we'll talk with a, a, a scientist at the Jackson Lab. So give us this background. How did the, the sure. collaborative come about? And then we'll talk with uh, our friend right. at the Jackson Lab. Um, as I sort of mentioned earlier, go, taking that you know 100-year look back, um, going back to our history, again, collaboration was really important. Um, the marriage or the, the bringing together of uh, PhD scientists and MD clinicians is not something that typically happens. Um, August Crow, who I mentioned as kind of the forefather of translational medicine and comparative biology and of, um, of really making these collaborations possible, he was actually a, a PhD and his wife was a clinician. Um, so, you know, they really had started to kind of you know, form those kinds of collaborations. When Homer Smith and E.K. Marshall came here as well, they were um, MDs and clinicians working with alongside scientists. So really having 
the problems that are happening in the clinician world and having scientists that can help address them and work together and kind of um, bringing together resources that may not or resources and knowledge that may not um, you may not have separately. And mm-hmm. even in large institutions, you may not have you may not have a lot of collaboration. You may be right down the hallway from somebody and not really know what they're working on and and how possibly working together could could help that. And um, that's how essentially this got started with um, um, Herman giving a talk at the Jackson Laboratory about three years ago. Yes. I mean, we have uh, had talks with the Jackson Laboratory about collaboration for a long time. But then three years ago, I gave a talk there. And then all of a sudden it clicked Mm. like all important (coughs) things, you know, out of small things. And uh, now we have an ongoing collaboration where the Jackson Lab looks in their mice for chronic renal disease phenotypes. I mean, they want to, uh, uh, first they analyze the mice and then we start analyzing the damage which happens uh, to the kidneys. And then we go into the zebrafish and uh, we can more distinctive, uh, analyze distinct genes there. And then lastly, we are collaborating with Portland with the main medical center where they have set up a cohort of patients with diabetes and early stages of renal disease. And we can go directly then from the mouth via the zebrafish into patients. And the buzzword these days for this is translational medicine. Mm, Great. And I I suppose that the the genius of this is that um, the normal way that doctors, practicing doctors or clinicians, as mm-hmm. you said, would find out about these things is that someone would try to sell them a new drug. Yeah, <laughs> it would be the end stage. They wouldn't be involved in right. in saying, well, let's let's um, ask these questions that might lead to a, a different way of, of analyzing these things. Exactly. So it's, it's a yep. shortcutting that, this exactly. collaboration. Yep. Well, let's bring in um, uh, Dr. Ron uh, again. Corstania. Um He's with us by phone from the Jackson Lab. Welcome to Talk of the Towns this morning, Ron. Thank you. Good morning. Glad to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about your work and then, um, then how it relates to this work on, on uh, kidney disease. Uh, okay, so um, we are interested to see um, which are the genetic differences between different mouse strains uh, that determine susceptibility to, uh, to kidney damage. So we, we're basically asking the question, why do some strains... Um, uh, get kidney damage while other strains do not, and uh, and and using that approach, trying to identify which genes play a role in that, um, and that's what we've done for the last um, I don't know five or six years, and uh, and have been pretty successful in that, and found several several genes that we then wanted to test further, and then fortunately um, met with um, with uh, Professor Haller, and. Uh, being able to establish this collaboration so that we, we can do that in a faster way than, than just doing it with mice. Mm. So this, this is speeding up the research? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, once we have uh, found a gene, it's, it's really only a candidate gene. Uh, we, we think it plays a role, and there's a pretty high chance that it, it, it plays a role, but we, we're not sure. And for that, we really need to uh, manipulate um, that gene uh, making a, uh, either a, what we call a knockout, so a disrupted gene uh, so that it no longer functions, and then see what happens. And we can do that in a mouse, but that takes several years and, and is also a very expensive undertaking. While in, in zebrafish, this is, this is easier to do and also uh, a lot faster. This, instead of two years, it only takes a few weeks, 
and so so that's why it it it, it really helps us speed up uh, our research and 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 knowing a lot faster whether we're on the right track or not. And if you were to do this without the zebrafish, you said it would just take that much longer. Uh, yes, I mean, it, it, of course, the, the lifespan of a mouse is a lot uh, longer than, than a zebrafish, uh, and so we just have to wait uh, longer before um, we can see if, if, if the mouse has a kidney disease or not. Um, and it's also easier to, to, let's say, turn off a gene in a zebrafish than it is in a mouse. And so also technically, it's just a lot easier to do. So what would, again, and we'll talk a little bit about that when we talk with folks at um, Maine Medical Center, but what's, what's the human connection? If we get this knowledge that comes through working with the genes in, in mice and zebrafish, where do we translate that? How, do, how does it begin to show up in treatment or diagnosis? Dr. Holland? Uh, yeah. Well, <coughs> we are involved in large international studies to solve that problem. So I was the principal investigator in one study in the New England Journal last year where we addressed this problem. And if we succeed, we can prevent with novel drugs kidney disease. We will prevent dialysis. We will pre uh, prevent chronic renal disease. And uh, this is important for the quality of life and for to prevent the suffering of our patients. Mm. And Dr. Kansaja, um, what would you say about that? Yeah, I think I think I mean what, what's really uh, 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 the, the thing that that's really beneficial. I think using uh, our models is that uh, if you only look in, in humans, you can only really see the the end stages of the disease, uh, while we can. Um, already look at uh, kidney damage at an earlier stage and trying to identify the genes that are playing a role in, in, in earlier stage. And so uh, in that way, try to come up with um, ways to, um, to interfere in that earlier stage instead of uh, at the late stage uh, where it's already uh, uh, big problems for, for the patient. Mm. Um, as, as both of you, as researchers, kind of um, work on this issue, what do you think the public most <laughs> needs to know about this kind of research? What is it that, that um, may be missing from the dialogue? Um, you are involved. You have this intellectual conversation. You've got the research. What does the public kind of uh, need to know about investing in this kind of, of research? Uh, that's, a, <clears throat> that's a very good question and a very complicated one mm. because... Uh, each and everybody does not want to be reminded of disease. Hmm. I mean, the, to th even to think about, you know, that eventually you will become sick is a problem. But nonetheless, one should uh, screen now and then, especially when you become older, for the function of your organs. And screening for kidney disease means to screen for proteinuria. You look in the urine, we don't want to look at the urine, but this is what you have to do, say, once per year, whether there is uh, too much protein in the urine. And once, when you do this, and when you screen, it's like measuring your blood pressure. You have to know your blood pressure, and you should know, do I excrete uh, uh, albumin, protein in the urine? And then you're on safe grounds. Mm. It's like uh, screening for other diseases, uh, 
You just make sure that you don't have it. And once you pick it up, then it's a diagnostic problem, then your doctor will take care of it. But at these early stages, nobody should be worried about that because then you can do something about it and then you can prevent the disease. So mm -hmm. screening, looking or measuring albumin in your urine once per year, that's uh, uh, an important method. And w um, will there be other things when we have more of the genetic um, work done that we can screen for besides the, the protein in the urine? Yes, that's one of our goals. Uh, it would be much better if we would have specific molecules which we could me measure, identify. It would be easier. Uh, we could differentiate then earlier for specific diseases. So that's one of our important medical and scientific goals. Mm -hmm. For bo both of you, um, um, the, the notion of collaboration kind of across um, uh, species, <laughs> different species, and across inst institutions. Are there some particular um, challenges to doing this, this kind of collaboration, or has it been easy? Uh, it has been easy because everybody is really interested in that. Uh, it has been very fruitful uh, and also a great, uh, a lot of fun to discuss these things, and this is something you can only do in the in these surroundings. You mm. can do it here on the island. You meet and uh, you discuss things. You look at new data, and uh, it's you're a bit isolated from the rest of the world at the moment, which is very good for fruitful discussions and excellent science. Mm. Jen. Um, I sort of like to take this approach of like a recipe, you know, what are the key ingredients that really go into creating a multidisciplinary collaboration. I mean, you've got to have the collaboration and it's got to be um, <clears throat> using multiple models to really answer the questions quickly and taking a translational approach to make sure you're not just ending with the animal models, but really taking it back to the bedside. We call this bench to bedside, bench of working in the lab to bedside into the patients is really important. And the, the couple of the key pieces there is bringing people together in a, in this kind of capacity of collaboration. Um, as I said earlier, brings in solutions that people who might've been separate before can now talk together and work through the solutions faster. It brings um, knowledge together that they may not have had develop solutions um, from an academic and a clinical approach um, together, and um, also engages government in a way and engages biotech world. The biotech world is used to working with groups of people. They're not used to working with just one person. Um, so it really brings a platform that people can attach to very quickly, and it grows in this like uh, exponential way, essentially. So kind of having that foundation, which we're doing now, to really grow and change over the years as, as things come on and um, develops. <clears throat> and then really, as, as Ron and Herman have alluded to, it increases the speed and efficiency and reducing costs, which is a huge thing. Um, research costs a lot of money. And the National Institutes of Health, which is uh, in the U.S., our federal body that pays for a lot of this research, grants are becoming very, very hard to get. You can get a perfect score on a grant, and you may not get funded. Um, but having bringing together a collaboration of, of really renowned institutions in the state of Maine will make us stronger on a grant. And maybe where a piece of this may not have gotten funded by ourselves, we may be able to have more success to get funding uh, working together uh, because people are really looking for that and looking for the translational approach. It's not just, okay, we're going to fund this and it doesn't connect back to what the real problem is. Mm -hmm. so. I'll ask Dr. Constantia um, if he has uh, other thoughts about um, this notion of collaboration. H how, do you, how do you approach that collaboration? I, I, so I think this, this collaboration has been fantastic. I have many other 
collaborations, um, but but this one is really uh, has been very, um, as Dr. Hollis said, very fruitful. Um, in just the two years that we've been collaborating, we've we've accomplished a lot of things, and now uh, recently um, expanding that collaboration uh, with Portland, where they're also um, very uh, excited, and 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 also if you see what they've have done in the, in those just those, I think six or seven months it's it's incredible and um, it, it's a unique collaboration and and um, I think um, because of that I think we, we can really um, get some really nice results in the next few years well great thanks for being with us this morning on talk of the town thank you and we'll see if we can get our partners from Portland with us. But that was Dr. Ron Castagna um, from the Jackson Laboratory in Bar Harbor. Um, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. We're talking about um, a research collaboration that um, is looking at preventing kidney disease. Um, in the studio with us are Dr. Herman Holler of the Mount Desert Island Biological Lab, along with Jen Literal, also of the Biological Lab, and kind of um, you're helping to manage this partnership, this this collaboration. What what's what, what do you think is is um, kind of the the key to making it work? Um, as I said, the kind of the key ingredients and in the recipe of this is really bringing together um, renowned institutions and and really top notch scientists and. Um, medical doctors in, in the clinician field and bringing them together to work through major issues and to hone in on um, being able to talk across um, a platform that they normally wouldn't have the ability to do. Um, and, and it's really interesting having, I was at a workshop a couple of months ago, and you know, clinicians and, and, and medical and PhD scientists really talking about, here's a major issue and what are our tools in our research world to answer those questions. And sometimes those happen in silos. And we're really trying to tear down those silos and bring everyone together and have those questions, uh, you know, be able to discuss that in an open playing field. So. Mm. Well, now we have Dr. Mark Parker of the Maine Medical Center on the line. Um, Dr. Parker, tell us a little bit about your involvement in this collaboration. Sure. Good morning, everyone. Um, well, it's been exciting for us. You know, Dr. Haller was the one who first made contact with us, and it's it's hard to believe that it's um, less than a year because we've really come a long way since then. Um, but he came to us having already uh, worked on through collaboration with the people that you've already talked to this morning, and come up with the idea that things he was beginning to see at the be- at the be- at the uh, at the lab bench could translate into things that we could do clinically. And um, and it made sense for us to be the people involved in this because we uh, right now we're obviously at Maine Medical Center we're in a very population dense area of Maine our kidney group takes care of a large number of patients with chronic kidney disease we have a lot of research endeavors going on and we have the affiliation with the Maine Medical Center Research Institute so we have a good infrastructure. We're trying to get a project like this off the ground, and quite frankly, without their help, we could not have come anywhere near as far as we have so far. So our involvement, myself and another collaborator, another uh, clinician colleague of mine, Dr. Mike Acom, as this project goes forward, will begin to pick up the clinical pieces of it and involve um, our patients who want to participate in this so that we can begin to study these things. And, and so what are you looking for as you begin to put those patients together? What kinds of folks are you you're hoping will, will want to be involved? 
Well, initially, we, since the target here is to try to identify people at the earliest points in kidney disease so that we can target them for intervention and help them at a point where we can make more of a difference, um, obviously we want to start to look at those groups of people. You know, as Dr. Haller, I think, already told you this morning, one of our principal problems in kidney disease is by the time our current clinical tools allow us to recognize someone with kidney disease, there's a little bit of a horses out of the barn element to it. A lot of change has already occurred by the time our markers start to change. So we want to identify within our chronic kidney disease population people who are at earlier stages of disease, see if some of the markers that Dr. Haller and others are beginning to see in the laboratory correlate with problems in these patients, and then take it back earlier and earlier in kidney disease and see if we can really um, identify people um, at the earliest stages. Simultaneous with that, we want to see if these same markers are potential uh, targets for treatment because we don't know exactly what will be the best targets for treatment early in disease. Right now, we have some therapies for chronic kidney disease, but they're very imperfect. Mm. And um, so you're in, in the process of putting um, the, the first group of uh, folks together. Um, what's the next step? Well, the first step is to get all the appropriate approvals <laughs> to do human subject research. And any time you want to do studies in human beings, you need to go through a variety of regulatory bodies to be sure that you're doing things that are safe and not harmful. And, um, and so we're at the process, uh, we're about to embark on the process of getting our institutional approvals through review boards for beginning to study uh, blood and urine samples from people with chronic kidney disease for these markers. In some respects, this is not a hard study to start in the, in the sense that we're not asking people in the early going to do things such as, as try new therapies mm. or make major changes in their care. We're really just going to be asking a small population of, of select patients for additional blood and urine samples so we can study uh, things going on in their bodies a little more carefully. And we'll do this in the nature of, of a, a traditional pilot study, meaning that we'll start with a small, probably in this particular uh, plan, probably on the order of 30, 40, or 50 people and see if we're beginning, if we're on the right track. And if we're on the right track, and if we have some promising results, then we can expand to a larger group. Mm. And perhaps you're not the, the, uh, the, the right person to answer this, but if we don't do this kind of work, um, remind us again um, the cost in terms of patients' um, quality of life and the, the cost of dialysis. What, what are we doing if we have to take it to the end stage? Yeah, well, I, I, I listened a little earlier, and I heard Jen uh, quote some of these numbers to you, and it, it's absolutely true. We're, um, we're on a trajectory in the United States right now where we, in the next 10 years, will probably have on the order of uh, 750,000 people or more on dialysis or at least waiting to get a kidney transplant. Right now, that number is close to 500,000. And within Maine, we have, um, we have close to 1,800 people on dialysis. Um, we, although we opt to try to get people transplants as a better 
option for many people in terms of quality of life and health, even that's problematic and expensive, and it's not easy to do, and patients have a lot of uh, complications at times from those therapies. Um, and the cost is um, really enormous. Uh, I think Jen quoted a fairly accurate number that, on average, by the time somebody reaches um, end-stage kidney disease in Maine, we're probably spending on the order of $64,000 a year on their care. And that's averaged out over all people, so that's a variety of forms of care related to dialysis and transplant, but that's, that's a huge cost. And, uh, and kidney disease uh, management, particularly end-stage renal disease management, takes up a disproportionate amount of our Medicare budget in the United States currently uh, because all patients with end-stage real disease are eligible for Medicare and their their care is very expensive and it's very difficult for them. Mm-hmm. So you've given us the rationale very clearly. What are, um, As we close with you, what are your hopes for um, this particular project and this, this collaboration, Mark? Well, I hope two things. I hope um, the actual... Um, goal of the work is accomplished, which is that we, in fact, identify markers, promising markers to identify people early in the stages of kidney disease, and that some of these markers turn out to be therapeutic targets so that we can sort of change the course of chronic kidney disease. Um, And then secondly, I hope for a very successful collaboration that leads to other activities. This this is sort of unique for us that uh, this, this uh, uh, series of events that's been initiated by Dr. Haller, that we have uh, a famous uh, clinician scientist from Germany who has laboratory work at, at Mount Desert Island, who engaged um, the Jackson Labs and engaged Maine Medical Center and Maine Medical Center Research Institute. There are a lot of great minds working together in this project, and it's a really a joy to, to meet all these people. And I, I, say, I expect that if we have some initial successes, that this will lead to a long, long collaboration and many other projects. Thanks so much. And if you'd stay on the line, we do have a phone call, and it may relate to um, what you've just been saying, or maybe not. So let's take the phone call. If you'd give us your first name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Um, my name is Mo, and I'm from Blue Hill. Thank you. Go ahead. Um, do you collaborate with the Center for Human Genetics at all? Um, the Center for Gen- Human Genetics is also in Bar Harbor. Is that yes. right? Yes. I don't know that there's a direct co- correlation in this particular project. I was just curious because it's um, pretty intriguing. No, I, <clears throat> at the moment we don't. I mean, we have organized now with the three institutions uh, which were online here already, but uh, as soon as we find novel mechanisms, novel genes, I mean, we are open for more collaborations, and especially here in the state of Maine, uh, I think this would be uh, perfect to have more institutions joining in. Any oh. other any other question? Um, no, perfect. Thanks for so much for your for your call this morning, and thanks to Dr. Mark Parker from the Maine Medical Center for being with us by phone. Thanks again. Thank you. Let's um, open up our phone lines and uh, let others call as we try to get one more um, uh, guest on the on the phone this morning. Um, but if you've got a question or a comment um, about this research collaboration that's working to prevent kidney disease, or at least find out um, some of the early um, markers that might allow us to prevent it, give us a call at 1-866-625-9378.
That's 1-866-625-9378 as we talk about kidney disease. Jen, anything to add in terms of this collaboration, um, how you see it happening? And sure. by the way, how is all this funded? Um, sure. Well, <laughs> those are two very big questions. But the, the first I think I'll sort of hit on is that, um, you know, as we've talked through this this morning, what we're really trying to set up here as a foundation is kind of this pipeline of, you know, finding, finding new genes out of the mouse, screening them very rapidly in, in zebrafish um, at a, you know, at a, at a at a faster pace, going back into the mouse to really um, understand what those genes are and prioritizing the list. And then coming into the, the patient setting, as Mark had said, is we're starting with a pilot. We're trying to really make a pipeline. We're starting with one gene in our pilot, but we have other genes that are coming out from the research pi- the research portion of the pipeline and kind of continuing that through and back around um, to continue, you know, finding what those, you know, what the results are from that. Um, the funding is a very good question. When you start a pilot and, and and bring together a collaboration like that, the funding is a very big problem. You don't come with a grant of here's the idea that we want to do until you actually start doing it and have res- research results. Then you can go for um, a federally funded grant and things of nature. So it's really all of the collaborators kind of pulling together whatever you know, <laughs> whatever breadcrumbs of resources they can pull together, donating their time and kind. And so we're really kind of pulling this together on on a shoestring to get out the door. But um, we all feel very strongly that it is the right approach and that, you know, we are going to have, be able to get results by setting up um, the collaboration in this way. And so we are embarking on it and, and we hope to be very successful both in funding and with our research results. So. Great. Well, you've identified one more um, guest uh, for us, uh, Jen, and that's Kim O'Brien. And Kim is uh, employed by the Jackson, I mean, the, not the, the Mount Desert Island YMCA, and she's with us by phone. And uh, Kim, you've got a story to tell because um, you've begun to be um, affected by um, kidney disease. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. Um, well, um, uh, over a year ago, my doctor um, started to notice that my kidney function was coming back below normal. And um, she referred me to a nephrologist um, from the Northeast Nephrology up in Bangor, and I met with him, Dr. Como, in um, <clears throat> November of last year. And we did um, um, a number of different tests, and I had an ultrasound, and it was determined that my um, kidney function runs between... 45% um, percent when it's really low to um, um, the best it's ever been um, is uh, 65%. Mm. So um, we, you know, how that affected me was um, I had to pay attention to what I took. If I needed to take a pain reliever, I'm not allowed to take Motrin anymore or um, ibuprofen. I have to take Tylenol and I have to be aware that whatever medication is prescribed for other things is kidney-friendly medication so that I don't have further loss of kidney function. Mm. So you've had to really um, understand how kidneys work and then um, how you can do your part to to, uh, prevent further deterioration. Right, right, and that's what we're working on now. We're trying to, um, in addition to this, I've... um, I've had high blood pressure for several years, and we're trying to de- determine if the kidney function is um, 
the kidneys are causing the high blood pressure, if the high blood pressure has caused the kidney function loss, and how we can control that. And we're having a little trouble controlling my blood pressure right now, which is of concern because that can cause future kid- kidney damage. Mm. So, Dr. Holler, this, this kind of connection between hypertension and kidney disease going both ways, um, that's also part of the, the, the mystery. Well, this is not mystery. Okay. I mean, we understand, uh, perhaps not completely, this uh, close relationship between the kidneys and blood pressure. Mm. Kidneys regulate the homeostasis. They regulate how much volume we keep in the body. They produce hormones which regulate blood pressure. And actually, coming back to the fish, the kidneys are responsible that we walk upright because mm. they control the pressure in our blood vessels. However, when the kidneys are malfunctioning, the blood pressure goes up. It becomes hypertension, and this is a disease. And then we have a vicious circle. The high blood pressure, which may be produced by the kidneys, is also damaging the kidneys. Mm. These filtration parts of the kidney are very delicate structures. They're easily damaged. So with high blood pressure, we have ongoing damage to the kidneys. And it's really, as our patient described, a vicious circle. The malfunctioning kidneys elevate blood pressure, and the elevated blood pressure harms and damages the kidneys. Mm. So to, in order to prevent this, we have not only to find new drugs for kidney but we also have to treat hypertension. Where we are, in comparison to kidney disease, quite effective. We have good drugs, uh, how to control blood pressure. Mm. So, um, Kim O'Brien, um, what, are your, uh, what, are, what are you looking for as you um, go forward, both to understand um, your own situation and the overall um, uh, disease, the kidney disease potential? I, my you know, the connection between the hypertension and the, and the kidney uh, function loss. Um, my issue is that I have um, my upper number is always a little high, but my lower number is always very low, and I have yet to find a medication that helps that, that, that addresses the upper number but doesn't cause the mm. lower number to go too low. So that's one struggle. And... Um, I also was recently diagnosed with diabetes, and I lost 20 pounds and changed my diet, and so I'm no longer considered diabetic. But that's a fear that I have, of course, because diabetes is the biggest kidney killer. And so I, you know, I have to always be aware of that as well. So it, um, it's just the whole connection is very fascinating to me, and I'm trying to find solutions um, for it um, and, and good in the good drugs um, I guess I haven't found them yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that search will be on, but it sounds like you've got that curiosity factor going for you to say if I understand this better, I can take care of myself better. Right. That's right. Great. 
Exactly. That's great. Yes. Well, thanks so much for being with us to share that uh, that story with us. Oh, well, Jen has a question before you go. Uh, I just wanted to sort of say on the personal side, um, you know, as we hear personal stories, it is it does become very personal. As we as I started out the show this morning talking about looking back in time and starting with our forefather August Crow, who was a Nobel Peace Prize winner. He he got his research really in understanding capillary blood flow. When his wife, Marie, who was a medical doctor and one of his close collaborators, came down with diabetes, he kind of shifted his entire research to studying insulin at that time. And that was when it was just starting to understand what it was and what it did. He brought it back to Copenhagen from Canada and started one of the largest pharmaceutical companies, which is Novo Nordisk, mm. And so as an insulin you know, producing factory. And so, um, you know, really it is a personal thing. And, um, you know, kind of why are we doing what we're doing? It isn't just because you know oh let's study this today you know it is a personal it is a personal thing and um, we see that all through all through science and research and um, so and and for me it's it's especially personal because my son has just been diagnosed with kidney disease mm. he has stenosis in both his right and left renal artery and um, he's 16 and so um, I'm, I'm further encouraged to learn more so that I can help him as well. His blood pressure is good right now, but it's, you know, it, 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 the more research we do, the, the better it is and the more hope I have for his future mm, great. Um, as he grows. So. Good. Well, Kim, thanks, thanks for joining us. Good luck with, with your, your research and um, with taking care of both yourself and your son. All right. Thank you so much. That was Kim O'Brien. Uh, Kim's a resident of Mount Desert Island and, and one of the people, many people, who are um, affected by kidney disease and um, our guests in the studio are helping kind of, kind of figure some of that out. So if you've got a, a question for our guests, give us a call, one 625 or locally, 469-0500 in the last few minutes as we talk about this research uh, collaboration. Uh, Dr. Holler, um, if all of this is personal, why did you start get started in medicine? <laughs> where where did you get that intellectual curiosity to say this is what I want to do with my life? Well, uh, I st I was always intrigued by academia, but uh, I started first uh, as an art historian, <laughs> and then uh, yeah. I did medicine, and uh, I found that medicine is more challenging. Uh, art history is also very interesting, but. Uh, one of the privileges of doing academic medicine is that you have both worlds. On the one hand, you're a medical doctor. You are taking care of patients. You're involved with patients. Uh, and this is demanding, but it's also very rewarding. And on the other hand, you are involved in research. You uh, try to understand the ways how the body functions and how disease comes about. Uh, and then bridging this by finding new diagnostic tools or novel therapies, that's a privilege. Mm, mm. And uh, so this is how I started, and this is what I've been doing for the last 40 years. And uh, it was uh, always challenging, uh, but also very rewarding, and uh, I got a lot out of it. Mm. Jen? Um, I just found a very interesting thing, you know, starting to work with the Maine Medical Center and, and talking with um, Mark Parker, which we didn't hit on today while he was on the phone, but um, he is uh, working on a committee with the American Society of Nephrology on trying to recruit new doctors. And the real problem is there's not a ton of new doctors coming out 
in nephrology. And the reason is, is because there's not a lot of treatments and it's kind of a depressing field, you know, and it's really hard for them to go in, you know, every day and have more and more and more patients and not have the tools to really work with them. Mm. Dr. Haller? Yeah, it's rare that I disagree with Jenna, but I wouldn't <laughs> call it a depressing field. Okay. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, what is so great about uh, MDIBL and about our collaboration here is that uh, when young researchers, young doctors, students come here during the summer, uh, work in the lab, and they meet other scientists, physicians here, they're hooked for life. Mm. I mean, this is such a wonderful area to do research uh, with all the surroundings and with the conditions MDIBL uh, is generating for us that over the years we had our most brilliant young scientists and doctors coming out of these uh, surroundings of the MDIBL. Mm. And, and that notion that maybe there isn't a particular cure, but there's the opportunity to be involved in collaboration mm -hmm. and to cross that bridge mm -hmm. um, between the what you call the bench and the, and the bedside, mm -hmm. that must be intriguing to young physicians, or at least I would hope it would be. Um, Dr. Haller, do you, do you think it's a, it's a hard sell to, to uh, convince people, or do they need to be here um, having that intellectual conversation? They need to experience it. You can't tell them about it. Yeah, I, uh, it, this is a very good question, a very important one, which has broader implica implications for medical education and what we do with the system. I think uh, it is important to structure the uh, careers for these young scientists uh, so that they know if they work hard uh, and they have findings and they, they will be successful at the moment. And Chen was already alluding to that. It's very difficult. The National Institute of Health, uh, there is not a lot of money. It's very, very hard to get grants. We all love competition, but at least there should be a chance that you uh, can win. Mm. And uh, I think this is what we have to improve. I still believe that uh, clinician scientists, uh, which is something the U.S. have generated, in the glory days of the 60s when the NIH was uh, really generating a world model for how to do clinical uh, research, how to combine clinics and science. I think we have to keep this and we have to work hard so that this will be sustained. Mm. Is that, is that um, uh, well, I'm, I'm trying to formulate the question, it's something to do with the public's understanding of science and perhaps the falling away of support for science is do you see that in in the in the in the politics of of the world today that that people don't understand how science works and therefore they aren't as supportive or do, is that a story we need to tell like we're doing here on the radio Jen? um sure um i think that it it's difficult to understand where the pipeline starts mm. and ends up everyone wants to to fund and put all of their effort into when you have the discoveries. But where do the discoveries come from? You can't just fund the end part of the pipeline without funding where it begins. And it mm -hmm. really begins with the basic research. Um, we couldn't have gone right to the main medical center to start testing in, in human samples if we didn't have the information coming out from the bench. And so you really need that basic research 
um, to start there and having that come through the pipeline. And it, the whole piece is important. It's not just one part or the other, not just having those new drugs and new therapies and just funding, you know, the end result you need to have um, to be able to understand how it all fits together. And by sinking it all into one or the other only fractures it and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, breaks the pipeline apart, basically. So. And it sounds like it starts um, both with a problem mm-hmm. um, that's identified, but also with this intellectual curiosity yes. that, um, Dr. Holler, you, you attribute to the, the ability to do that in these kinds of settings like the, the uh, MDI Biological Lab or the Jackson Lab, where um, you're surrounded by both intellectual um, firepower and, and, and natural beauty. Yeah. I think it's very important to keep in mind that science is an adventure. Mm. It's not something, you know, we all work <laughs> in pipelines, we all structure our research so in order to get results. But first, it's uh, an expedition into the unknown. Mm. So you have to have other people to talk about and then to come up with solutions and then to test them in the laboratory. And this is what we have been talking about this morning. It's an adventure, and uh, this, I think, is the fascinating, or the fascination which we should uh, tell our young students, and I still think it works. Great. Jen, some contact information or um, so that the people yep. can learn more? Uh, so we have coined our collaboration, Remain Healthy, and it's uh, R-E-M-A-I-N-E-H-E-A-L-T-H-Y. So that's our uh, website. You can reach us at www.R-E-M-A-I-N-E-H-E-A-L-T-H-Y.org. And on Monday, July 30th at, in, uh, at the Estacu Inn in Northeast Harbor, Maine, uh, Dr. Herman Haller will be talking about the art of diagnosing and using his art history degree, um, as well as uh, talking about how our collaboration is working as well and sort of uh, starting from the art history perspective. So <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, we've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests today, um, Jen Literal and Dr. Herman Holler of the Mount Desert Island Biological Lab, Dr. Ron Corstanja of the Jackson Laboratory, Dr. Mark Palmer of the Maine Medical Center, and Kim O'Brien from uh, Bar Harbor. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to those of you who called in. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from Waterfront Concerts,